right, well, we are right in the middle of our series in 1 John. I'm Pastor Danielle. Welcome to all of you who uh, maybe have not been here to Spark before. It's amongst your first times. You are among friends. We're happy you're here. And if you can't tell already, we're kind of casual and chill, so just come and hang out with us anytime, and we're excited to do that. In the middle of this 1 John series, Kevin um, opened the series by talking about how all of this is about seeing God in flesh amongst us and seeing the, the way of Jesus lived out amongst us in the flesh, Sarks. And today we're going to be diving into one of my favorite passages, passages that's kind of a a go-to passage for me um, whenever I'm even thinking about the way of Jesus or how Jesus lives or what attracts me most um, about the person and the way of Jesus. So we're going to be looking at 1 John 4. Will you pray with me as we get started? Jesus, thank you so much for this evening, this opportunity to be together, to uh, be present with you and with one another. Make us aware of your presence, Jesus, as we turn our, our thoughts and our hearts towards your word and towards your way. Um, Teach us how we might um, become more like you and experience more of your love here on earth as it is in heaven. We ask all this in your name. Amen. The title of tonight's sermon is God is Love. Let's read from 1 John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God. For everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. We're going to continue into the reading a little bit in just a bit. But this one first opening statement, um, did anybody learn a song that goes to this growing up, right? Yeah? Anybody? No one else? Just a few of us? Okay, great. Um, Beloved, let us love one another, love one another, for love is of God. Sure. The lyrics are there. All right. Pastor Kevin. Right. Nice. I didn't even plan that. Love it. Let us love one another. Love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who loves has born of God. And knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. God is love. Beloved. Let us love one another. First John 4, 7 and 8. All right. Very good. Thank you, Pastor Kevin. We need a little tip jar on top of your piano here. We all set. <clears throat> yes, please. Yeah. Um, when I was growing up, that was a song committed very early to memory. And not just that, but this constant refrain in my Christian experience growing up that God is love. And if you ever told me to where to find that verse in the Bible, I'd be able to point to it because I could say that little part at the very end. First John 4, 7 and 8, right? This statement... God is love is an amazing, crazy statement. You need to stop and think about all of the other choices that the author of 1 John had when writing the sentence, God is. When you think about that blank that gets filled in there, why does the author of 1 John say love? The author could also say Big, strong, truthful, just, right, um, forceful, powerful, right? Phoebe, my daughter, will often ask me, like, can God pick up that car, right? Like, so how big is God? Is God bigger than this? Can God do this? 
Think of the critiques that people have of Christianity. Think of the critiques that people have of um, this Jewish faith that starts and then becomes a Christian faith as well. Jews, now Jews and Christians together, holding on to the story that reaches back to Genesis. We hear often like Christopher Hitchens and others who will criticize this God of the Bible and say, God is angry. God is wrathful. God is vengeful. God is jealous. God is um, unfair. God is violent. But the author of 1 John does not choose that to fill in the blank, right? The author of 1 John chooses love. This is the experience of the early church. This is the experience as these letters are going, and this letter particularly likely to the community in Ephesus, they are deciding to define all of what we know of the God of Israel, stretching back from Genesis through the stories of Exodus, through the stories of into the land of Israel, and then out again in exile, and then back again, and then through the second temple period and into the time of Jesus and then into the Greco-Roman world, with also all of the competing Greco-Roman gods and goddesses all around, this author is going to say that the very grounding thing, the very key thing that you must know about God in this very simple sentence, right? Subject, verb, and descriptive adjective, right? This is who God is. God is love. And according to 1 John, then, love is going to become the central focus and the identifying marker of the Jesus community and of God himself. So if you and I believe, as the scriptures say, that God is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever, then when you and I read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then going forward through the Psalms and all of that, that we are going to read that as followers of Jesus through the lens of love. And for those of us as followers of Jesus who have believed in the resurrection, we are also reading then through the lens of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And that lens we're seeing through love as well. And we have good reason to do that, don't we? Because John chapter 3, 16, the verse at every sporting event in all of the United States of America, will say, for God so loved the world that God gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not die, but have eternal life. This is the key cornerstone and framework that Christians should be known for, according to 1 John, and also identify how how we relate to the world at large, that God is love, that God loves us, that we are to love one another. And John is going to continue to push on this rock, so to speak, throughout the rest of that text. Now, if I'm honest, I think that it's also true that many of us could probably say that it may not be what Christians are known for first today. Um, I have family members whom I love dearly, and they are no longer attending church, and they've not attended for like 25 years. So it's not like a recent thing. Um, And this person called me this last week seeing a lot of the flooding happening in Northern California. And the first words out of their mouth was, well, what, what do the Christian leaders have to say about this? What does, and the words were, what does Pat Robertson have to say about this? Um, and don't you think he's probably blaming us for something? What did we do wrong to deserve fires and now floods? 
So this person's experience of Christianity and Christian theology is not first that God is love, but first that God is judgy, right? Um, that, that God wants to figure out an equation that can explain all of the ills in our society and that if, and God is punitive and God is cruel. But that is not the God that we encounter in our text, nor is it the God that's preached by Jesus or the people that followed Jesus. Where does this concept of love come from and how do we define it? Well, initially in the Hebrew Bible, there is a principle of rabbinics called first occurrence. And that means that when we first encounter a word, we want to define and understand that word by the way it's first introduced to us. As though you're learning a language, okay? So as uh, the Bible's being written and as Genesis is being written in Hebrew, the first time the word love occurs, ahava in Hebrew, that first time that word occurs is going to be in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Sometime later, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. He replies, and God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, ahava, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. That's the first occurrence of the word love in your Bible. It comes in the, occurrence, in the sort of setting of a very hard ask and obedience and sacrifice. <clears throat> By the way, for some reason, um, this is just to give you, I get prepped. I get trained all week long to be able to be with you guys because for some reason, my daughter was reading this story in her Bible book, and she said, why would God, right? It's because a child should freak out at this. <laughs> why would God ask a father to do that to his son? And we have to have a whole conversation about it. And I'm like, well, but then, you know, it's okay because God's going to provide a ram, and the angel will stop God, Abraham's hand. It's all me, right? She's like, so did God lie? Is God a liar? That's what she asked me yesterday. So is God a liar? And isn't that against the Bible? So I've been, any question you want to ask today, I am totally prepared for because we've had to negotiate, is God a liar? I'm like, no, no, God is love. Let's read First John. Okay. The second occurrence of the word love is just a couple chapters later. Um, Sarah, after apparently hearing this horrible story from Isaac, dies. And um, as she's died, now Isaac is just heartbroken. And Abraham sends his servant to go and find a bride for Isaac. And he and Rebekah see one another from a long way off. And then he becomes, he takes Rebekah, Isaac takes Rebekah into the tent and he loves her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. That's the second occurrence of the word love. So the rabbis talk about how then we understand then the word ahava to always be coming first into the context of something deeply personal and intimate between a parent and a child or a spouse and a spouse. That's what this word starts with in our Hebrew Bible. It's going to then continue on in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and this is something you all just said. With hero Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then Jesus and Leviticus 19.18 connect that word because it's ve'ahavta. Love the Lord your God, ve'ahavta. And then ve'ahavta la re'acha kamocha. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus and the early rabbis were like, okay, yeah, sure. So ve'ahavta, ve'ahavta, even though these two sections occur in two different books. They're connected because they use the same word. And so we understand the word love of God and love of neighbor to be one in the same. 
And that's how those words are first being used amongst the early Israelite community. In the context of sacrifice, in the context of parental love and affection, in the context of spousal love, and then in the context of a holiness that God has for his people. And God loves his people, and God is asking the people to love him back. Again, I don't know if we can really wrap our minds around how crazy that is. God's first command to the Israelites isn't, you should get all your doctrine down. You should know all of these other things. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and love me with everything you've got. And that's what carries into the most important command, and love your neighbor as yourself. So when we start to say things like, God is love, that can sound cheesy. It can sound like a bumper sticker. It can sound overly simplistic. But in fact, it is deeply um, beautiful and complex as it is set into our biblical narrative. Love is sacrificial, it is personal, and it is intimate. And when it says that God loves us, And when it says that we are to love God, that is not something that is lightly put into place within our reality. Nor is it, it should be earth-shaking and ground-shaking that we all can sit here and say God is love and that that's a central tenet of Christianity. God is love. Now, the word that 1 John will use is agape. And we can go into that big, long, really fun thing that all the Christian pastors do, right? We're like, well, there's all these different words in Greek for love. And, you know, there's agape and there's a feel. So we can do all of that. But I think we've had people who've done it quite well for us recently. Let's look at how often John is going to use this word in particular in this next passage. Beloved, agapetoi. Let us agape one another, for agape comes from God, and everyone who agapes has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not agape does not know God because God is agape. Now, that word agape has that same type of connotation in our story, and this is how we know it because John's going to define it for us in the very next passage. This is how God showed his agape. He sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is agape, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Agape is something that can be seen. It is something that is actionable and is something that immediately requires sacrifice, fitting right back into our narrative from Genesis. You see, God sends Jesus to undo and remove our sins. So the agape love that pushes and defines who God is and pushes God's action into the world into sending Jesus into the world is immediately defined by sacrifice. It is a sacrificial love. So when we say God is love, we are immediately understanding that sacrifice is part of what that means for God and part of God's character. You see, Jesus's love is other-focused and self-giving. That is the definition immediately of understanding that God as love, whether it's ahava or agape, that it is other focused and that it is sacrificial and it is loving of others, giving of ourself. This unconditional love that we experience through our biblical narrative and our stories is it's a love that gives without expecting anything back, right? 
It doesn't expect anything back. Paul will lean into this, right? God loved you. Jesus died for you while we were yet sinners. You did not already benefit or make some sort of contractual agreement like Jesus. Well, if you'll die for my sins, then of course I'll follow you. It's not that at all. It's that it's already started with Jesus laying down his life. God sending God's only son into the world as that sacrifice for us. Whether or not you and I ever do anything to open up our hearts, or our hands to receive that. Jesus loves you without exception, without requirement, unconditionally. There is no expectation of your behavior to shift or to change in order to earn that love. This was revolutionary in my life. Has anybody ever felt like, I know my parents love me, but I'm pretty sure they might love me more if I get straight A's instead of the one B? Have you ever had that conversation with a parent? Anyone? Um, in fact, in some homes, this can be called a double bind. The double bind is actually a, a deeply wounding psychological thing. And if you do this to your children or loved ones, please stop. Um, the double bind is when you bring home the five A's and the one B, your parent says, wow, that's so wonderful. You got five A's. Too bad you couldn't pull that B up to an A. And you never actually get a clear affirmation or hope or love in that. There's always a but. I love you, but I love you if. I love you if only you could have done, you know, I love you and you could do this for me instead, right? And my parents are amazing and wonderful. And I always knew they loved me unconditionally, but I do recall my mom saying to me one time that she loved me, but she didn't always like me. And that kind of stuck with me. I'm only 46 still talking about it. Um, so, um, those types of things, when we grow up in those experiences, and particularly if we grow up in significantly dysfunctional families or difficult families, or where there's been, um, separation or attachment challenges or trauma or whatever has occurred in our lives, we tend to then understand and see God in light of those familial relationships. I mean, we do call God Father after all. So if all of those human relationships are a little bit messed up, and if you don't have a messed up human relationship with your parents, you should go to another church um, because all of us here do, and we'd be irritated by you the whole time. Uh, So In all of that, then, we have to do some deconstructing of the idol that sometimes we have built in front of us about how God actually loves us. Have you truly, have I truly, have we actually sat down and tried to truly contemplate the very truth that God is love and that God loves you? Without exception, not as you should be, but as you are right now in this moment, in everything that he has done for you, in every way that he's created you, God has made you perfect in God's image and God loves you, period. Not if, not if your mother Teresa, God loves you more. Not if you are a terrible human being, God loves you less. But this incredible, crazy thing is that God loves you and me, that there's agape here and that it is provided for us and on example, on display for us in this sacrificial way. And it is done for you and me long before we can ever feel like we've done anything to deserve it. The way that I like to understand this is actually through the story of the Exodus. 
When the Israelites are in Egypt, enslaved for 400 years, they don't even know yet God's name. God has not yet revealed God's name to Moses at this really cool burning bush incident that will happen later. And so at the very beginning of Exodus, they're oppressed, they're enslaved, they're imprisoned, and they just cry out because of the oppression. They don't even cry out to God. They just cry out, and God listens, and God hears, and God remembers, and God delivers, and pulls them out, rescues them because he loves them, rescues them out of Egypt, brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai, and then says, love me. But does all of that saving and rescuing and delivering from all of the oppression and all of the pain and all of the hurt rescues a whole people. And only then after that, does God then say, Let's be in relationship with one another. This is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. Love me. We have been rescued and redeemed long before the Ten Commandments are ever given. There was no way for the ancient Israelites to earn that deliverance. And there's no way for us to earn it either. This is the Ahava agape love. The God is love expression and fully on display in our, in our biblical text and in our lives today. What do we do with that kind of love? And then how do we live when we start to glimpse, just glimpse in tiny little bits, God's sacrificial, unconditional love for us? What happens when you start to actually deconstruct All of those things that you put on God. God loves me more when I get into this school. God loves me more when I bring home the good grades. God loves me more if I do all these things. When you start to set all of that aside and start to just lean into the truth that God just loves you. Just loves you as you are. Just loves you. How does that change how you live. I mean, if there were a whole bunch of people, let's say Christians, walking around on the face of this earth going, yeah, man, the Father is fond of me. As I am. Now, that doesn't mean I don't need to work on things or change things or try to love, right? But just right now, God's got my picture on the fridge. He's carrying my photo in the wall. He brags about me to all the angels. God is fond of me. And if we start walking around with that truth and that reality that God is fond of you, that this is intimate and it's personal and it matters and it happens in the context of that type of connection between a father or mother figure or a spouse and spouse, that sort of intimacy where we are known and we are loved just as we are. And when we start to live into that truth and that reality, how do you think we start to consider others? How do we respond and change to what we see in the world? How might that shift how we live? If you had a whole bunch of people just walking around saying, God is fond of me and you. God just loves you right now with your cheese falling off the cracker, with the coffee stain down the front, with the messed up relationships, with the hurt and the broken, with the very things that you've never shown or told anyone, the things that only come up at two in the morning, the things that you would never tell another soul, that you are fully known and loved. Right now and all that. 
How do we live when we start to experience just a tiny bit of that? There's a a story of a woman in the Bible who has had some experience with Jesus. Long before any sort of transactional behavior that Jesus will give on the cross. Long before, like, I love Jesus because he's going to die on the cross to save me from my sins and then I don't have to burn forever, right? She doesn't know that's going to happen. She comes and she just, for whatever reason, something in her encounter with Jesus, this God of love, has just moved her to the point where she breaks open an alabaster jar and anoints him and weeps and just with the sheer gratitude. Not coming as a customer ready to buy what he has to sell. Not because he's going to die on the cross for her sins. She doesn't know that. Just because of who he is and how he's loved her. What a beautiful expression. Can we just love Jesus? If tomorrow, God forbid, in my terrible bad theology, we all found out that somehow I was getting off the list as we get into the holy, you know, pearly gates. I know it's shocking to even consider such a thing, but let's just say, right, will I still love Jesus with all that I have simply because of who he is? Or do I do it just so that I get some golden ticket to a heavenly amusement park in the sky? Right? I don't want that, actually. What I deeply, deeply want is a God that knows me and loves me, that knows and loves us. Because I really think that that love then can change the world. And John continues with this. He says, Beloved, since God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. Now that agape word is continued to push through all of these moments. So this means that our love for others is sacrificial. That our love for others then is a love that accepts people as they are right now in this very moment. And says you are deeply loved and you are welcome here. You are loved. God didn't make a mistake when God made you. You are loved. As you are right now in this moment. You are loved and you are welcome here. And then as we start to move into what that means, it means that we're going to sacrifice for one another, that we're going to live out Paul's words in Ephesians of considering others better than ourselves, that this agape love is not cheesy at all. It's actually very demanding. It's not easy. It's hard work. And it means we're going to start to reach out to every single human being that we know, seeing immediately in them, not just the image of God, but the one that Jesus died for. And we're going to start to say, let me understand how I can love you more. And what that means is that this is going to be a part of self-sacrifice in my life. Now, however you want to do this, if you want to take it in very small ways, right? My dear, wonderful, amazing husband, Pastor Kevin, cannot close a cabinet door to save his life. It's actually much improved after 20 years. We've done some, you know, intervention. But I went on vacation one time, and he sent me a photo of every cabinet door open in the kitchen and was like, I'm having the time of my life, right? So... I know this is not just to us because it's like, it's a theme in some movies I've also seen. Like Tina Fey and Steve Carell, she gets jammed like right there. And she's like, ah, oh, close the door. I'm like, oh, I know. That's the thing. So 
Here's the thing. I felt for a long time like the way I was going to win this battle between us was to constantly be telling him every time he left a door open. So there was, that, of course, was really a high point of our marriage. Um, and instead, the moment came where I thought, what do I love more, closed cabinet doors or Kevin? I love Kevin. Yeah. Woo! That's right. Phew! I talked to Kwame. He helped me through it. Yeah. <laughs> Counseled me. Right? This is a very small, ridiculous example, but it, revol- it involves my self-sacrifice of saying, I'm just not going to care about that. It's just not a big deal. I can come back around and close the doors, and it's not a big deal. That's a very practical, small way, but I'm not, I've been in pastoral ministry a long time. People have gotten divorced over the lint trap in the dryer. Seriously. Like, she just won't clean the lint trap. I'm like, okay, so you clean it, right? Because in Christ, we are trying to live out an agape, self-sacrificial love. And that means then we're going to start to consider others better than themselves. And while I fail at this always, maybe at our 50th anniversary, we all have another story to tell of, of another way. I just learned that last year. Maybe I'll have gotten a little bit better. I'm, I am working on it. So in all of those ways, we try to find out how to love, how to love the people right within our own walls or our own cubes or our bosses and all of those very difficult people sometimes that come into our lives. And also how do we love those that we are so quick to other? Whether it's people that are outside of our borders, whether it's people that are outside of our race or our nationality or our ideas of how God should operate or our denomination or, um, you know, the, the theologies that drive us crazy or the, the political statements that drive us nuts. How do we lay down our lives for everyone that we meet? Because Jesus's words on this are very clear. Love your neighbor as yourself, and you also have to love your enemies. Those we would perceive as enemies. This is very difficult, hard work. You should not sign up. I'm now going to do the anti-commercial for the baptism. Don't come try to immerse yourself in these very difficult waters. I'm just joking. Um, Because it's just so wonderfully difficult and challenging and hard, isn't it? We can be loved by God. Even that part's hard for us. How do I actually experience the love of God with all my baggage? And then how do I start to turn that around and start to love one another in the same way that Jesus loved me? This is very difficult. We love. We just keep striving. We're just going to keep striving to love our neighbor, to love our enemy. And when we're trying to figure out what that actually looks like in practical ways, we can look back to like Pastor Tom's message from two weeks ago and also the words of the Apostle, of the Apostle Paul in, 1 Corinthians, in Corinthians 13, right? What is love? It's patient. It's kind. It's not jealous or boastful. It's not arrogant or rude. It believes all things. It endures. It never ends. We have examples of what this looks like in our text, in our world around us. It looks like on a day when the temperatures are dropping and it's very cold, a couple going out and renting 42 rooms for homeless people on the street to make sure that they can be warm that night. It looks at that being the first step and the second step saying, what are we going to do with the systemic homelessness problem and the absolute um, inequality in our community? And how do we start to shift and change those things back? And how do we keep doing that every day when it gets more and more difficult? It looks like hosting the Austin Channing Brown event and then realizing that that's the first step to a very many, many, many steps that 
are going to continue, unfortunately, to persist in this world, but we keep enduring and we keep working and we keep trying to find a way to start to see the changes that need to come into the world, the changes that need to come in me, in us. We start to continue to work on that. So how do we connect with this love? I mean, this cannot just be from my own effort every day of going, okay, today is the day where I'm going to try really hard to be more like Jesus because that's going to fail in about one or two cupboard doors open, right? So I'm going to be already off track. And John then will finish in this passage. This is how we know we live in him and he and us. He's given of us of his spirit. That in each one of us, we have the opportunity in this community as a whole, as the presence of God lives here, as the Holy Spirit indwells within us, as the source of all life and love is that which gives us very breath, that on those days when I find it very difficult to love anyone, including myself, I can say, God, you said you are love. So give me some of that so that I can give it to others. And one of my favorite prayers in marriage has been, God, you love Kevin. And when I'm feeling less capable of that, I really love you. I'm totally putting you on the spot. Kevin's amazing. It's like the best husband in the world. But like, right, I can then also say, God, please help me to love Kevin more, better, more like you. And I can pray that prayer, God, please help me to love the way that you've loved. Because we are all in and with the Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, John says. And if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they live in God. So good news, everyone. God is in us and we get to live in Christ. And in that power of the Holy Spirit, we can say, Jesus, please help. Also, my favorite prayer, Jesus, help. Yeah. Please help them stop talking to me. Please make this person be quiet. No, just please make me be quiet. Please make, right? Like, please, how do I do all of those prayers? Have you not ever thought, God, please make that person stop talking? Am I the only person that's like, please? Please make them stop talking. That's a good prayer, right? You can just pray. God, please change me that I can listen. God, please make me be present here in this moment. Please help me to calm my amygdala down. Please help me to be less defensive. Please help me to listen. God, please send your love here into this room that I might love the way that you love. Please help me to experience more of your love here on earth. Please help me to understand this. And, and Paul knows we're never going to get it, right? He says in Ephesians 3, I'm going to pray that you might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints how high, how long, how wide, how deep the love of Christ really is, though it surpasses understanding and you're never going to get it. Right? That we can start to invite, Paul says here in this passage, Christ to come and dwell in our hearts and live here, making Christ's home with us here, that we might start to try to comprehend this great love. And as we do, we're going to walk away with lots of things, but I'd like to just suggest that God's love is sacrificial. It is other-focused. It is intimate. It is unconditional. It is incomprehensible. It is powerful, and it is world-changing.
that you and I are loved by the creator of the universe. This is a world-changing idea. And that every person that we meet on the face of this earth is also loved by the creator of the universe. And the creator of the universe just can't wait for each one of us to love the creator back. That is a world-changing idea. And if we do this, the world will change. Even just our own tiny little bits of them, even just the worlds in our own hearts. So what's become part of my practice in trying to sort of think about this? So I, I like to imagine, if this doesn't help you, then just ignore what I'm about to say. I like to imagine that there's a rocking chair and that God sits in that chair and that I get to, like a little kid, crawl up and put my head on the chest of the Father and just listen to the heartbeat. And just try to experience what it is to be deeply loved by the creator of the universe. That when we say God is love, that we start to place ourselves, even just in our imagination, into a scenario where we can start to think, what might it be like to just sit and relax and realize that we are deeply loved? This has been part of my practice for over 20 years, my spiritual personal direction practice. And also whenever I did any pastoral counseling in my office, I'd always make sure I had a really loud clock on the wall, like the really cheap ones that make the big tick sound, right? Because it reminded me of that heartbeat sound. And I would make sure that sound was loud. So whenever I could get quiet for a minute and close my eyes and start to picture and imagine the warmth of that embrace and listening to the heartbeat, that I could calm down again and start to pray my favorite prayer, Abba, I belong to you. Over and over and over again, Abba, I belong to you. On a run, Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. And just that truth, that you and I are loved, that you belong to him, that God has embraced you, that God invites you to crawl up onto God's lap, to put your head against God's chest, and to start to lean in and listen to the deep love that the creator has for you. This is the message that Jesus brings to the whole world, that God so loved the world that God sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not die, but have eternal life, that we are reconciled to the Father through the person of Jesus Christ, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can start to believe and be healed and have the indwelling of the love of Christ, the agape, ahava, love of God, living out in our own life and to others. Abba, I belong to you. This is this crazy revolutionary message of 1 John. God is love. That's it. You want to know what Christians believe? That's what we believe. We believe that God is love. And all of the rest, everything else, those are details. So if our faith, our experience with Jesus has not been first marked by love, go back and revisit that. Seriously, you might need to figure out where you made Jesus into the image of an authority figure and where you might need to meet the real Jesus. 
If we have walked into this Jesus relationship with shame or guilt or hurt or pain or constant um, anger at ourselves, then we need to start to revisit what it is the creator has to say to you and me that Jesus just loves us, is fond of us, and is fond of everyone we meet, loves deeply us. That's where it starts. We belong, we are loved, and everyone we meet, we get to start with love with them too. So we want to invite you then to come and say again to Jesus, I do. That in that beautiful night in which Jesus had the disciples surrounding with him in that upper room, that in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed, and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That very sacrificial love. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. It is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The table is ready, and all are welcome. Uh, Please stand, if you can, for a benediction. So to all my dear sparkers, to every single one of you, may you feel, know, sense, and be overwhelmed at God's amazing love for you. And may all other iterations of God, whether that be authority, judgment, rule, condemnation, whatever it is that we still carry around with us, may all of those images be demolished in light of how wide and how high and how long and how deep is the love of God for you, for us as a church. And may we leave and depart this place knowing and feeling and living out of that love, so that this world can also experience God's love. And in God's name, in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Have a great week, everybody. We will see you next week.